Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Captain Pierce, sir, Captain Honeycutt. I missed Trapper by ten minutes. Ten lousy minutes. Captain Pierce? Hi. Can you believe that? You couldn't have driven any faster. I let that geisha take one too many laps on my back. Pierce, I'm just a little confused. Hawkeye, and don't let a little confusion throw you, Captain. BJ. One of the first things you learn over here, BJ, is that insanity is no worse than the common cold. Here they come! I don't hear nothing. Wait for it. Attention all personnel. Report immediately to admitting ward and operating room. Attention all personnel. Report immediately to admitting ward and operating room. All right, Dave Plyer here with you on 720 WGN. So five decades ago, legendary TV series MASH showed the world that a great comedy could be more than just funny. The pilot episode of MASH aired September of 1972 on CBS. MASH told the stories of men and women serving during the Korean War, providing a way to process the trauma and toll that the Vietnam War, which was still being fought, when the show premiered, had on the country. It began as a satire, morphed into a comedic drama, made Emmy history through 11 seasons, and ended with a final episode watched by TV's biggest audience for a scripted series. 50 years after its debut, MASH is still saluted as one of television's finest half hours. Mike Farrell joined as the fourth season premiered and spent eight legendary years with the cast. And to talk about that journey is Mike Farrell. Hi there, Mike. How are you doing, Dave? I'm great. You know, 50 years, uh, you know, period pieces always do stand the test of time in television and the movies. And MASH is no exception, wouldn't you say? There's never been an audience as large as the one we had for the final episode, which tells you something about the the uh, uh, reach of the show and the impact of the show. And when I say never, some people say that they've, ca- they've categorized the Super Bowl games as having had larger Nielsen numbers, but Alan was telling me the other day that the real calculation is uh, faces and voices and people. And um, the the end of the show was was uh, watched by people in auditoriums, auditoriums in in r- huge rooms at schools, uh, in places that you can't calculate the. Uh, the number of people that is absolutely true and you're right there were there were parties that were being had i mean people had events around the world to watch the end of this series yeah it, it really is amazing and it's very touching i must say um i remember coming into the onto the set at the beginning of a season probably the fifth or maybe the sixth probably the fifth um and i just walked up to alan we sat down and talked as we usually did before the as the season started and i said are you hearing what i'm hearing out there and he looked at me and he said yeah this is really something <laughs> that's, great. that's great yeah i mean i i'd been in different parts of the world I, i'm i'm involved in human rights work and refugee assistance and um it's having people stop you in a country, you know, that is not the United States and say, 
I can't tell you how much your show means to us. It talks about peace. It talks about the the value of human life in a way that we've never seen on on television before. So, you know, what we decided, Alan and I, and, and, and the cast was certainly in agreement, was that what we had then was a big responsibility to do the, to, to continue to do the show that spoke to those values and, and do it in as intelligent and thoughtful and um, um, careful way um, and try to maintain a level of integrity that, I, in my experience in television, is not often maintained. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the result is what has resulted. Uh, this, Al- Alan, you may or may not know, Alan and I had, uh, along with our families, had um, lunch together uh, on the anniversary of yeah. the 17th. Yeah, I saw pictures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Alan, Alan said, can we just take a picture of the two of us celebrating, congratulating? I said, sure. And he, he he tweeted it out. Now, tweeting is not something I know much about, but it has been everywhere. Oh, it's blown up social media. It's blown up social media everywhere. No question. As soon as it happened, it was on every blog. It was on every web page because it's historic to see you guys, you know? No, it's just amazing. And and it's that embrace that, uh, that the audience has demonstrated for the show that has always just touched me to the quick, I have to say. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary of MASH with Mike Farrell, BJ Honeycutt, and there's more when we come back on 720 WGN. Sirs? Yes, young man. I'm in your party. Huh? As you can see, we're jammed, but if you give us your name, we'll have you paged here at the bar. A couple of Table 27 are leaving. Busboy, set up Table 27 for the young man in the green tuxedo. <laughs> we usually hold it for Cesar Romero, but he sprained his mustache. Sirs, with your permission, would you stop horsing around, please? You hate the table. Uh, no, the table's fine, really. Uh, can I fix you a Shirley Temple or a Raw Rogers? Is it true about those two? Oh, come on, would you? Day Player 720 WGN. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of MASH with Mike B.J. Farrell. I want to talk a little pre-MASH. You know, you, you moved your family, uh, the, your folks moved your family to Hollywood at a very young age, and your dad was a carpenter on film sets, and... And uh, you were in the Marine Corps, and thank you for your service, by the way. Um, and when did the light bulb go off for you that you wanted to get into acting? Oh, you know, um, I, I, it, it's a little like uh, you, you, you're born in the in the circus. You have to you have to <laughs> you have to take part. <laughs> uh, you know, my folks moved to West Hollywood, California. Before it was a city, it was a, it was a county strip, an unincorporated county strip. But it was right south of Beverly Hills and right off the Sunset Strip. And show business, it was and continues to be the sort of uh, business of the day. And I have to admit, as a kid, um, I had an older sister who had movie magazines. And I saw in those movie magazines that uh, people pay attention and kids get a lot of what I thought was love, but it was certainly a lot of attention. Um, and I would assume respect. And it, it, it all sounded to me like, boy, wouldn't that be some kind of a life to have? And yeah. so I, I sort of nurtured a dream for many, many years, but I was a very shy kid. So 
I, ne- I didn't give voice to it, and I certainly <laughs> certainly would have talked to my dad about it. He was a pretty tough guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He'd have um, razzed me about it, and he'd have made fun of me for having even thought of it, primarily because I think he, I knew he loved me, and he wouldn't want me to have my feelings hurt by being rejected. Gotcha. But, you know, uh, I, uh, I, I I carefully car- carried that with me. I went to Hollywood High School, you know, the yes. great school of the stars. Mm-hmm. And I saw kids on stage, and I longed to be there, but just didn't have the guts. And it was um, it was actually a friend of mine, a guy who had come all the way out from Eastern Canada to become to try to become an actor. And he knew that I had the same aspiration. And he we had a conversation about it one day. And he said, "Well, Mike, you know." If you really want to be an actor, maybe you ought to do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> good, 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 good recommendation. Good thought. Yeah. So I said, "Well, like what?" And he said, "Well, I'm part of an actor's workshop. Why don't you come down and see what we do and see if you, you know, want to do that?" And that was kind of the beginning for me. Wow. And I know those early gigs, you know, you did with every guy in Hollywood did to become an actor. I mean, you took a lot of great parts. You, McHale's Navy was some of the early gigs, Combat, The Monkeys, I Dreamed of Genie. You were a bellhop in The Graduate, uh, Bonanza, Manic, $6 million man. You did some commercials, but you also did what everybody else does. You were a bouncer at one point. You were a private investigator. You had to earn a living. Drove a truck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, you, as you say, you, you want to be an actor, you've got to be find a way to make a living uh, outside of it because you're not going to earn enough money doing a part here and a part there if you're lucky enough to get an opportunity to do it. He went that away kind of part. Yeah, no question. MASH was on for three seasons already. Two major cast members walk away, McLean Stevenson uh, and Wayne Rogers. Burt Metcalf, a writer and associate producer for the show, knew you, contacted your agent. Uh, They weren't even sure Wayne Rogers was leaving yet. It was a conversation. But they needed a backup plan. And, you know, following a screen test with Alan, you were offered that role. Right, you are. And uh, I'm telling you, it was... um the whole process. I mean, I was, by that time, I had done uh, two television series yeah, and yeah. knew I knew kind of my way around the, <laughs> around a camera. And uh, and I knew Bert slightly because he was a casting director at Universal when I was under contract there. But um, he left one day. He said to me, um, I wanted to say goodbye. And I said, hey, sorry to see you go. Where are you going? He said, I'm going to 20th. I'm going to do a show over there. And I said, you know, good, great, good luck. And um, there's a story, I, I don't, if you don't mind. I was, a show I was doing with Tony Quinn at Universal involved my being under contract to Universal. And they were then looking, once the, the, the Tony show was canceled, um, they were looking for something for me to to be in. And most of the stuff they offered was something I wasn't interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so one day a guy came to me and he said, a producer, and he said, I've got a, a, uh, uh, a script I'd like you to read. It's a comedy and I'd like you to play the lead. And I said, well, that's very flattering. Let, let me take a look at the script. And mm-hmm. I had, uh, prior to this, I didn't know the show MASH. I knew it was on the air. You're aware of those things, but I didn't pay a lot of attention. But um, I went to ha- have dinner with a friend, and I went in to see him 
And he said, um, I said, let's go. And he said, wait, wait, I can't. I've got to see the end of the show. And I said, what show is that? He said, come on in. You can watch with me. <laughs> he was watching MASH. Oh. And I will never forget a scene with Gary Berghoff and this innocent kid trying to make sense out of the situation and run the camp and do the whole thing with the bombs going off uh-huh. and the uh-huh. nurses and the doctors running crazy. And I was stunned by what I saw. And I thought, my God, what a wonderful, wonderful show that is and how exciting that it's on the air. And so cut back then to my being at Universal where they're looking for something for me to do. This producer said, would you like to do this show? And I said, let me read the script. And I read it, and it was not a not a particularly good script. And one of those sort of three-joke-per-page um, kind of shows. And um, I said, no, no, thank you. And he said, you're, you're turning down the lead in a television series? And I said, um, yeah, I guess so. And he said, why? I didn't want to say, I think your show is stupid. So so I said, I said, well, well, look, it's not MASH. And, Hmm. you know, it it, it just came off the top of my head because MASH became for this, this, for me, this icon of what was possible in television. And a year later um, came the conversation that you described where, uh, they asked me to come over and talk to them, and I did. And they said, look, we're not sure Wayne is going to leave. We're having these contractual discussions, and we don't want him to go. Uh, but but if we do, we're looking to see if, if you know somebody else might be right to fill in the spot. And I said, look, it's great. I'm thrilled at even being considered for such a thing. But the one thing I would not do or not want to do is to come into the show and be Trapper John. Right. If, Wayne decides to go because yeah. that had happened a couple of times in television to sure. uh, a big mistake. So anyway, they said, Oh no, 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 you're quite, you're quite right. They said, um, you know, then in the military, people leave, people are transferred, people do this, people do that. Uh, so I said, well, great. What, you know, what we, they said, what, uh, what we have in mind is a character who is married and has a child at home and plans to be intends to be faithful to his wife. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be a womanizer like Hawkeye and, and Trapper. How does that sound? And I said, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> you want, you you're talking about character modeling fidelity on national television. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Mind doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the so big right. difference. Yeah. That was the big difference in the character. And you kind of knew that, but you know, when you walked in and joined an ensemble, especially when chemistry had been built, um, you know, but you you noted before that people made you feel very welcome from that very, very first day. I thought, you know, at first, when they called me and said, you've got it, um, the second call I got was from Alan saying, can we have dinner, which we did that night. And nice. we sat and talked for a long time. Very generous thing for him to do. Nice. And... Um, and then that was probably a Friday and then Monday morning. And I thought, oh, God, you know, Wayne was part of this company. And they, I know they had a very kind of collegial atmosphere and everybody loved each other. And I, I think they're going to hate me. Nah. <laughs> uh, so I walked on the stage and first person that saw me walked up. Gary Berghoff walked up, stuck out his hand and said, hi, Mike. We're thrilled to have you here. Oh, wow. Welcome. 
Wow. And Loretta followed and Bill Christopher and Jamie and uh, uh, Larry uh, Linville, who was with us at the time. And um, it was just really extraordinary, I have to say. And they, yeah. I was, I was, I was embraced by the crew and the cast, and we never looked back. That's wonderful. And the rest is history. I was going to say, you know, you, you, you and and Harry Morgan were kind of in the same position. I mean, both of you coming into the show brand new together, and Harry, of course, legendary career before Mash. You know, High Noon, The Shootist, The Oxbow Incident, uh, Dragnet, of course. <laughs> which I'm sure he, you know, had some great wisdom coming from that. But did you ever talk to him about, wow, okay, here we are, walking into the show? <laughs> well, it, it, it worked out slightly differently because the first episode um, was, was the one introduced BJ, and Harry wasn't part of right, it. Right, right, right. Harry was introduced in the third, BJ was a two-parter, and then Harry was the third. But he he walked on the set. Alan said this better than anybody could. He walked on the set. He sat down. He took all of our hearts and oh. and, and walked away. I mean, he just just kept them. Uh, he he was the most wonderful guy, unassuming, no self importance at all. You just thought that he was you know just like me, just walked in off the streets or something. He was a fabulous human being and. And, he, you know, if you asked him, he'd say, oh, yeah, well, yeah, this was so-and-so. And periodically, a Dana Andrews or a Ralph Bellamy would come on the set to say hi to him, and he'd introduce, wow. he'd introduce them to us. And it was – but Harry – I loved Harry. We became very close friends, and I can't, I can't say this without tearing up. I can't talk about this bunch without tearing up. But when the show ended, um, it was an extraordinary day on the set with camera crews and visitors and oh, yeah. reporters from all over, the, actually from all over the world. Um, and after the end of the shooting, we did a, uh, a press conference and each of us was asked to get up and speak and answer some questions. And when Harry got up, one of the, uh, one of the, reporters asked him about being on the show. And he said, this is, you know, one of the, one of the greatest experiences of my life. And the guy said, do you think it's made you a better actor? And Harry said, I don't know about that, but it's made me a better human being. Wow. Uh, wow. Wow. I, I was, I was gone. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh man. He, he was very, it's, it's hard to put into words what that kind of talent and integrity and wisdom and intelligence in one person can, uh, can, can bring to a group. And, and we were a company that had more than one of those people. Alan was another one with that kind of talent and intelligence and wisdom and, um, courage. Um, it's just amazing to me. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary of MASH with Mike Farrell, BJ Honeycutt, and there's more when we come back on 720 WGN. Look, I know how tough it is for you to say goodbye, so I'll say it. Maybe you're right. Maybe we will see each other again, but just in case we don't, I want you to know how much you meant to me. 
I'll never be able to shake you. Whenever I see a big pair of feet or a cheesy mustache, I'll think of you. Whenever I smell month-old socks, I'll think of you. And the next time somebody nails my shoe to the floor. Somebody gives me a martini that tastes like lighter fluid. I miss you. I'll miss you. A lot. I can't imagine what this place would have been like if I hadn't found you here. Through early morning fog I see Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me Day Player 720 WGN. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of MASH with Mike B.J. Farrell. You know, the show just, it did, you know, uh, age well as as it went on. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a show that ever really jumped the shark. You know, you all grew together. All your characters grew over the years, yeah. and, and they were more in depth. You know, the first four or five seasons. I'm, I'm going to say the first, yeah, four or five seasons of the of the series. There was a lot more comedy built in, and there was almost a different style to the show. And I, as a viewer, felt that there was, a, you know, I knew there was a, a bit of a shift more to drama, a dramedy, so to speak. Um, the laugh track uh, began to have far less of a presence on the show yeah. because it, it, there was a lot more you know, human, direct, um, you know, emotional, uh, you know, con- conflicts, you know, internal conflicts that, that the characters were going through over the years. But it definitely, you know, as I said, aged well. And besides the characters, the series grew into a into a different series that was still embraced with the same audience over all those years. I quite agree. And I appreciate you saying that. Uh, the, it was a, it was a, a decision made by the people at the top, Gene and, uh, well, Larry was gone by the fifth or sixth year, but um, Gene and, and Bert, that they didn't want the show to sort of ride the horse downhill, kind of to be a, the comedy that starts repeating its jokes. And they figured the best way to do that was to begin to look into the characters themselves and to use that to expand the show in a way that I think you've just described. It became um, it became about these people dealing with their issues in a t- situation of where life and death is a very real part of every day, trying to do the best they can in a you know a situation that nobody or very few people can fully understand. And it was um, I thought it was just really an extraordinarily intelligent and generous choice on their part to do that. There was an episode, and forgive me, I don't remember the rank of the officer, but there was a, it was a general commander, somebody that was out there that was putting a lot of kids up on the front line, and the, his casualty count was much higher than anybody out in the field, and the character of Hawkeye decided to operate on uh, this individual and take him off the field and take out, I don't remember his liver's kidney, take it out of perfectly healthy piece and i and i remember this as a kid watching this you know you were the moral compass your character bj was a moral compass is okay you might have saved you know more kids but what you just did was wrong i'm I'm, I'm thrilled that you uh, responded to the show that way we every day when we would start a show we would sit down and we'd go through the script um page by page and when we did that show um, 
we got to the part where uh, they had originally written it that Hawkeye and BJ decided they were going to put this guy, take this guy off the line by giving him a Mickey, telling him he's sick and take out his appendix, just get him off the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, out of the field of fire and stop, therefore, putting all these kids at risk. Um, we got to that point, and I, uh, we got to that page, and I said, um, I hear I have a problem, and they said, what's that? I said, BJ wouldn't do that. And they said, what do you mean? I said, the BJ I know and the BJ I'm creating and you guys are creating with me would not cut into a healthy human being because we all know the dangers of surgery and it wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. And they said, well, well, but this, we got this out of the research. We went to, this actually happened in Korea. And I said, I'm not arguing that it happened. I'm saying that BJ wouldn't be part of it. <laughs> Alan said, well, Hawkeye would. <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> it's true. I, I said, I said, I get it. I get it. I'm just saying that given the character that we're creating here, this is not something BJ would take part in. And Bert Metcalf, to his credit, said, wait a minute, guys, we'd, we'd, we'd have a, a lengthy, let me tell you, discussion. And Bert said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is a better story than the one we've got on the page. Mm. And they went back and they rewrote it so that what happened was BJ and Hawkeye agreed to do this. We'd get things to the guy and Mickey. And then when it came down to it, Hawkeye was ready to take him into surgery. And BJ said, no, 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 no. We're not, you're not serious about doing that. And he said, yeah, I am. And he did. And then BJ essentially said, I'm, I'm out. And at the end of the show, they made they they chose to make that statement. He came back in. BJ said, "How'd it go?" He said it was a ripe, healthy, yeah. you know, red, healthy uh, yeah. appendix. Yeah. And um, there were the there was that sign or the sound of choppers coming in, and the and the announcement: choppers are coming, and the war is continuing. And BJ and Hawkeye looked at each other, and they knew nothing had changed uh, by this, except that this man had been savaged. Um, and uh, we went out, you know, in, continued the fight. But I, I was so touched by them getting what I was saying about the character that they would change, actually change the structure of the script. Um, it was uh, it was an example to me, or an example of the kind of respect they had and showed to all of us and the kind of uh, regard they, they, everybody had for each other. Well, it's a, it's, it's amazing that you bring that up because I know not every TV series allows that you stick to the script, you respect the writers and so forth, but they opened that door almost since the first day, first days, weeks that you were on the set, you realized too, that, you know, there was a, a, maybe a table reader, whatever it was, and then they would open it up to the cast to, to talk about it and, and, and add to it to make it just that much better. That's exactly right. The first day. And I'd been, as I told you, I'd, I'd, I'd done two, two television series and a soap before that. And so we were sitting down and reading the script around the table. And um, everybody was very kind to me. I was the new guy that day, brand new. So we got to the end of the script and then um, and there was applause, which was sort of uh, usual. 
And then um, Gene Reynolds said, okay, page one. And I, you know, we had just gone through the script. So I looked at him like, what do you mean? And he said, oh, Mike, here's where we go through page by page to see if any of you folks have any questions, problems, suggestions. Wow. And I thought, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Very unusual. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Are you kidding me? And and it never stopped. I mean, it was that way every day, every every show with every script. And once it was finalized, once it was done, you didn't mess with it. You know, we but but. Yeah. Because, you know, periodic, well, I will say periodically we'd be doing a scene and something would, something would, uh, some some sort of inspiration would come Mm -hmm. and it would be a gag or it would be something, but we'd always call and the writers would come down and we'd say, what about this and this and this, do you think? And they said, oh, that's an interesting idea or no, do it this way. But um, there were, there was always this openness that was so God, it was just thrilling to be to be a part of it. Amazing. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary of MASH with Mike Farrell, BJ Honeycutt, and there's more when we come back on 720 WGN. Can you describe what you do? Uh, essentially, I'm on call for all medical emergencies, but I've never seen a situation here that wasn't an emergency. I did three amputations before I had my first breakfast here. Day Player 720 WGN, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of MASH with Mike B.J. Farrell. You know, you've done a lot of other acting work uh, over the years. Um, you starred in Providence, Law & Order, Supernatural, American Crime Story, NCIS, to name a few. You're a director, a producer, a writer. But you are an advocate and, and have been for a very long time of one of the most important things you have done and continue to do. You you co-chair, you're co-chair emeritus of the Human Rights Watch in California, but what you have been very involved in for the past 30-plus years is as president of Death Penalty Focus um, and the mission states we are committed to the abolition of the death penalty through public education, grassroots, organizing, media outreach, domestic and international coalition building. Talk to us about that effort. Sure. Um, it's something that... Um I got involved in early um, because I worked uh, in the 60s, if you can remember that far back, mm-hmm. uh, with a halfway in a halfway house with some people who'd been in prisons and in, in mental institutions and in different places. And and um, and I went we went into prisons and we talked to people about the program we were this we were representing. And you really get a sense of the horror of our criminal justice system and how much damage it does in trying to rectify um, inappropriate behavior. The death penalty never made any sense to me, but um, it made it became very clear to me when I was in some jails and prisons that it was uh, it was a hideous mistake. When I was doing the show, uh, you know, and so I got involved in things, but nobody cared. <laughs> But when I would, when I got on Mash, suddenly there was this uh, guy in, a, in a, one of the stars of a, of a major series, mm-hmm. and uh, there was more attention about and more opportunity to talk about things like that. Um, and um, the one day I got a call on the set from a minister uh, from um, Nashville, Tennessee, 
who ran an organization called the Southern Coalition on Jails and Prisons. And he said, I understand you're against the death penalty. And I said, that's correct. And he said, I'm, uh, we're going to, this was 1970, it was probably 76. Mm -hmm. That's when the death penalty was reinstated by the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, the death penalty was was held un, not to meet constitutional muster in seventy two. So, and we didn't have a death penalty in the country for four years. But in seventy six, it got started again. And this minister contacted me. Said we're going to have a bloodbath in this country. We've got a lot of people that are going to be on death row, and there's going to be a lot of killing. And I need somebody who can get publicity, get attention. Um, would you be willing to help me in my work to end the use of the death penalty? And I said, Yes, sir, I would. And that got me started. He took me to my first death row in uh, Tennessee, oh. and um, I worked with him. Later in California, we had our first execution. That's when I got involved with Death Penalty Focus. Um, and I've been doing it now for over 40 years, just yeah. trying to trying to get people to understand that the death penalty is harming us all, not just the people that are being put to put to death. Um, so, if you have any, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm always happy. And, you know, it's it's not a subject that a lot of people want to talk about. A lot of people don't know much about it, actually, but have a kind of visceral uh, reaction that you got to get rid of the bad guy. Um, but it's a it's it's a very complex uh, issue. Well, you shared with me last week a story about an Ohio man claiming innocence in a rape and murder case and was scheduled to die. And this does happen. And some of those folks are guilty and some of them are not. There was no DNA testing. There was no, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why some of this shouldn't be happening. And the governor uh, was reached to discuss uh, an untested piece of evidence that might clear him. Share a little bit about that story that you shared with me. Yeah, his name is Tony Apanovich. He uh, was, as you say, uh, tried and convicted and sentenced to death. Um, but there was a hair on the gurney that he was taken uh, away on. I guess he was wounded in the process of capture. At any rate, there was a hair on the gurney that was never tested. And we argued I was part of a process to get to the governor and say, there's a there's a piece of untested piece of evidence that needs to be a test needs to be tested. And uh, it was, and it demonstrated that he was not guilty, but it took a long time for them to come to the conclusion that he was, in fact, not guilty. The the, the legal processes involved in these cases are mammoth and complex to the degree of making you crazy. Um, But finally, Tony's conviction was overturned. And uh, I saw him, last time I saw him face-to-face, uh, he was still in prison, but he was being moved to a place in um, in Cle- uh, Cleveland um, for to be held until he could be released. And he was released conditionally. They said there's some there's some technical aspect to the release that was not satisfa- satisfactorily resolved. So he was allowed to go home and be with his kids and be with his, you know, family. But there was going to be a further action. The further action held that he had to go back to death row because of some technical failing in the judicial process, not because he's guilty, but because 
the process somehow was uh, wrongly handled. So we're now trying to get the governor to um, to recognize the governor has uh, demonstrated a little bit of uh, discomfort with the death penalty. So we're trying to get the governor to uh, to recognize that this is a case of utterly hideous injustice. The man was on death row for 30 years, then he was released for a couple of years, and now he's back. Wow. And there's countless stories like this, and that's exactly what you work toward. And I, I was reading an article that less than a month ago from the American Psychological Association. They called on the courts, Congress, state legislatures, to ban the death penalty in general for people younger than 21. And uh, there's more than 3,000 laws and, and regulations prohibiting you know, people under 21, their kids, from from, uh, you know, buying alcohol, tobacco, you, you know, you can't get a credit card with a cosigner, all this other stuff, and they're just too young to be executed. That's right. And, Dave, the, the, the process of moving big legal decisions is a tremendously difficult one. But they, it, happily, they finally said children, by a law under the age of 18, could not be sentenced to death. Now we're trying to get them to understand that the brain development processes, the scientific understanding now of the, of the development of the brain, really argues that nobody under 25 should be, a, should be sentenced to death for a crime that he or she is accused of doing, whether they did it or not. Um, but the APA, the American Psychological Association, now came out with this movement about the 20, age of 21, which is another step in where I'm hoping that that succeeds, that uh, that people will begin to understand that we, we should not be killing people for actions that they may not be fully psychologically prepared to, for having, uh, I'm not saying this correctly, but fully psychologically uh, 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 mature enough to be aware of the consequences of, of fully aware of the consequences of whatever action they may have taken. Well, if you want to find out more on uh, this mission and Mike's mission and all the fine work his, uh, his team does visit deathpenalty.org. Mike, it has been so insightful and such a pleasure uh, spending some time talking uh, down memory lane, talking about this legendary series on its 50th anniversary and all the fine work you do outside of your acting career. Well, that's very kind of you, Dave. And I, thank you. You've, you've made it a pleasure to, uh, to, to talk, uh, to talk about issues and to talk about some, something I love the show and the people there. Um, but it's fun to talk to somebody who's uh, smart and uh, has asked, asked good questions. Oh, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. Loretta Swit joins the conversation to celebrate 50 years of MASH next on 720 WGN. Am I nothing, Margaret? Your government issue, Frank. You came with my mess kit and my khaki girdle. So much for Frank Burns. And after you're home, I'll only be a smile on your face your wife won't understand.
All right, legendary classic TV series MASH is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Few actresses can capture the imagination of generations of television viewers with the certainty and charm of Emmy Award-winning actress Loretta Swit. As quick-witted and passion major Margaret Houlihan of TV's most honored series MASH, she is one of the few actors who can say she was on every season of this iconic program. Loretta was the only woman lead on the show and truly is a part of television history. Her role on MASH will be her most memorable, but she also has been in countless movies and TV series and is also an accomplished theater actor and has devoted herself for decades to animal activism. And to celebrate MASH's 50-year milestone is the legendary Loretta Swit. Loretta, so glad you are joining us. Well, I couldn't be happier. You know what we talk about. (laughs) We talk about Chicago. Yes, (laughs) yes, which is one of your favorites. thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been here many, many, many times, and it's almost like you lived here for a while. Oh, for sure. A lot of people think I do, which is fine (laughs) with me. (laughs) I could. (laughs) You could. You absolutely could. 50 years of this legendary series. Did you ever imagine that this show would still be relevant and continues to be watched by millions? I'll tell you, there's no, in your in your wildest imagination, and actors have wild imaginations, and they also, uh, when entering into uh, a series or a, or a job or something, you have very high expectations. You want it to be the best. You're going to give it your best, but never would any of us have dared dream about becoming icons uh, 50 years later to be talking about how wonderful the show was to do. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it boggles the imagination. Yeah. Certainly boggled ours. Yeah, not from this end. From a viewer's end, this show has been iconic for five decades and you can (laughs) yeah and you can jump in at any time yeah okay yeah um hawaii 50 uh mission impossible mannix young dr kildare were some of your first appearances on television and the team at the time at 20th century fox were familiar with your work so they actually had you in mind for the role on the tv version of mash yes this is true this is true i went in for the interview with a lot of backup, <laughs> a lot of backing. I had just done the premiere show uh, for Glenn Ford's series, Cades County. And Darren McGavin was my co-star. We had great reviews for the first show. So Fox was not unfamiliar <laughs> with my work. Yeah. And ironically, most of my TV work had been done on CBS. Millie Gussie, rest in peace. She said, whatever you do, don't allow them to look at film. Most of what you've done is comedy and uh, I, I, no, it, uh, drama, excuse me, it was the reverse. And MASH was touted, you know, first of all, as a comedy right. turned into a dramedy. But uh, uh, she said, <clears throat> don't trust them. They have no imagination. <laughs> and she was talking about people like herself, you know. So she said, uh, just say, I'll test for you, I'll read for you, I'll do anything you want, but I'm not going to risk having you look and saying, well, she's, she's a great actress, but can she make you laugh? Just tell them I don't have anything proper, you know, 
for you to see. And she said, they're going to try to say, oh, no, we'll know, we'll know. And she said, trust me, they don't. (laughs) It's true. It's very, very true. Yeah, very little imagination when it comes to that. Did you actually see... I'm afraid so. Did you actually see the original movie when it came out? Never. 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 Is that cute or what? Never saw the movie MASH. (laughs) uh, And then, of course, uh, I was away during most of the uh, casting flap, mm-hmm. uh, I was in Hawaii with my friend Jack Lord <laughs> doing a two-parter, beautiful show. And uh, wow. I came back, my agent called and said, uh, have you seen uh, MASH? And I said, uh, what is that? He said, oh, <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. He said, um, you have an appointment to talk to Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart tomorrow. So he said, but don't worry, it's, it's okay. But you don't have to know anything about it. He said, they just want to meet with you, look you over, have a little chat. There's no, there wasn't a script. Hello? Yeah. There wasn't any script. Yeah. There weren't even sides. There was nothing. It was just, you know, Gelbart and, and Gene. They had the dream in their hearts, and that was it. So, okay, having said that, I said, oh, fine. No nerves there, just going to sit and meet and talk and have a lot of fun laughing. And, you know, so uh, I wasn't even nervous. <laughs> anyway, that's wow. my story. Well, as I say, so you didn't really get to be in the same room with everybody until probably a, a table read. The first time we were all together was, uh, well, we had we had been cast. We had been hired. That right. was it. Right. It was a pilot. It was not. It was not an eleven-year deal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it. It was. I. I usually in my art book I call it the miracle of Mash. It really was a kind of miracle in a way because at this particular time, these particular people pulling together with the same basic attitudes and morals and yeah i mean it just we were all on the same page from day one and i think we all fell in love from hello i I just whatever whatever magic that was or blessing i like to think of uh, i usually do call it uh, uh, a blessing in my life and of course you know the boys and I are family. <laughs> they love yeah. when I call them the boys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no more than when they call me the girl or the kid. They call me, <laughs> For years, they called me the get, get the kid. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we're talking to Loretta Switz celebrating the 50th anniversary of MASH, and there's more after this on 720 WGN. Layoff, Frank. I just had a hard day at the office. Your conduct in there was not only unbecoming an officer, it was equally reprehensible as a medical man. Frank, I happen to be an officer only because I foolishly opened an invitation from President Truman to come to this costume party. And as for my ability as a doctor, if you seriously question that, I'm afraid I'll just have to challenge you to a duel. Swords or pistols? I was thinking of specimen bottles at 20 paces. There are ladies present. Oh, sorry, baby. Major to you. Why, sorry, Major, baby. You're both a disgrace to this outfit. Oh, come on, Frank. We've all had 12 straight hours of meatball surgery in there. My brain is sending me urgent rest telegrams. You must be tired, too, after all that malpractice you put in. You're dismissed. Thanks, Mother. 
We gotta get up early anyway and fix MacArthur's hernia. <laughs> Day Player 720 WGN. We're talking to TV legend Loretta Swit as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of MASH. You did some research before you got the role. You know, you were playing a head nurse. Yeah. It was in the war. So, yeah. you know, yeah. you got you, you had a prep. It. Yeah, you had a prep. That was actually my announcement. I said, okay, but I'm going to be the best damn head nurse in Korea. <laughs> Is uh, everybody in, in agreement about that? You know, That's great. And uh she uh, she did with the help of understanding, you know, the producers and the writers. Uh, let's face it, she had a lot of evolving to do. I remember Gelbart one day uh, were uh, out of range of the camera. He said, "Just hang in there with me, huh? Hang in there. We're going to find her." And I said, "I know we will." Mm. I I trusted him, and oh God, I loved him. I used to introduce him as my friend, the genius. <laughs> Don't oh. do that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, we were talking a little bit about this character and, you know, uh, you said Gene Reynolds, who was, you know, the executive behind the show. And, you know, the character was unique because it was a show being shot in the 70s and 80s about the 50s where women weren't yeah. always in a place of power. And your character always showed strong leadership, stood up for herself and others, and yes, could play with the boys and beat them. But your character absolutely evolved over those 11 seasons. Oh, yes. Uh, and um, I, uh, I, I, it was a thrilling experience for me as a woman and as an actress uh, to be able eventually, it took them a little while, you know, yeah. uh, um, uh, uh, there are so many side stories I'm trying to brush away so I can just not, um, diverge. Um, it took them a while to understand where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it, at that point in time, and even now, uh, collectively uh it's a male war you know it's yeah. it uh right. uh and it was um obviously there were six of us in the beginning and i was the only woman mm-hmm. uh so uh, there had to be things i had there there were things i had to deal with you know right. Uh, right. and uh and uh i I, I was blessed with people who uh, allowed me to try. You know, allowed is not even a good word. It sounds like they gave me permission. But, I mean, I felt uh, sometimes, yes, I had to demand or get pushing or something. But I felt I could. I felt that they were going to be reasonable eventually. They were going to understand eventually what she needed to be. And uh, um, uh, having not seen the film, I didn't know where where they were coming from. Mm-hmm. I did read the book, and um, I think we were probably closer to the book because it was written in sort of chapters or segments or episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, it it was an adventure for me, uh, growing not only as an actress as the character, but as a person as well. Sure. 
to uh, try and um, evolve with that character to a place where I could sit down equally and say, look, you know, I know I have a higher voice and a softer body, but I have something to say here, you know, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and I have to tell you, I am so proud of major Margaret Houlihan. Uh, I get mail every day from women all over the world who say they've become nurses because oh. of watching Margaret Houlihan. That's great. You, oh, you can't imagine what that does to me. It just is so fulfilling. It's like, well, I can stop now and put it on my stone. <laughs> People became nurses because of this yeah. one. Yeah. You know, it, just, it is so rich. I mean, gosh, it's uh, overwhelming and um here, I read mail sometimes that have have me weeping, you know, what things they say. And uh, initially, I think MASH was the best babysitter there was. Kids could watch MASH sure. and um, not not learn anything wrong or negative. Or they were they were watching something that helped them grow in a positive fashion. Harry Morgan yep. said. In an interview, somebody, uh, the interviewer said, uh, do you feel that MASH made you a better actor? And he said, oh, gee, I don't know about that, but I'll tell you this, it made me a better person. Oh, wow. And that's, that's from Harry Morgan, only that's like the best guy in the world. But he um, it, it absolutely, we were dealing with issues that were important and um, dealing, dealing with them in a very positive way arguable way in many cases, you know, in, uh, um, I, I can think of so many, but, uh, but it was, um, a real, a real challenge and a learning process for everybody. You know, it was, it was great. Well, we're talking to Loretta Swit celebrating the 50th anniversary of MASH. Such great insight. And there's more after this on 720 WGN. Major Margon Hulahat reporting for duty, sir. Oh, boy. Drunk as a skunk. She's tanked. A fine time to make a drinking debut. Where are the casualties, sir? Now, just hold your horses. They're not even here yet. Well, then let's go get them, sir. I'll drive. <laughs> Major, Major dear, you're drunk. Oh, I'm not so think as you're drunk I am. <laughs> uh, you, you better go to your tent, Major. I can't operate in my tent. <laughs> you're doing okay so far. <laughs> oh, go salute yourself. <laughs> Day Player 720 WGM, we are talking to TV legend Loretta Swit as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of MASH. I want to talk to you a little bit about not only the cast, but, you know, the character itself. You know, you were, to me, there was always three relationships throughout the series that were front and center. One, obviously, was mm-hmm. Frank Burns, Larry Linville. One was Hawkeye, Alan Alda. And one was with yourself. It was a relationship you had with yourself, finding your way through life, what you wanted out of life, the character. And... You know, the those early seasons between Hot Lips and Frank, they were funny as hell. I mean, you two, the chemistry between you was really, Indeed. it was amazing. Indeed, but it was, 
if I were going to continue to grow as the character, which is what I was fighting for, couldn't do it. I could not continue right. in that joke. Uh, yes, it was funny, and yes, Larry and I were. I mean, we would get a script and would take out our scenes and would go off somewhere, you know, on stage nine, and would work out some wonderful, funny stuff. <laughs> yeah, bring it back to the director and would say, "How do you like this?" Then would do the scene and he'd say, "I love it." You know. Ten times out of ten, I love it. Which is and rare. So do it. That's rare, though. So, you know that they let you go and and do that, but they were open to the actors making it better. Oh, oh, sure, yeah. Uh, but that's everywhere. That's that's in every uh, uh, acting opportunity. You um, you get a script, even if it's like excellent, great. You can still offer what you have, you flesh it out. You, you look at the script like a bit of a skeleton, and then you add the humanity that the, the writer is looking for. Uh, Larry Gelbart paid me that great compliment one day. He said, you always surprise me. I think I wrote something, and then you do this, and I think, I didn't think of it that way, but that's great, you know. So we... It was. It's a communal effort, yeah. the writer and the actor, and growing together and doing that together. The relationship that Margaret had with Frank could not continue. Uh, the writers were listening to me. I was listening to them. She was getting brighter. She was getting um, more fair. Just she wasn't uh, the iron majorette or whatever, and. Um, here he was, inept as a doctor. She had a lot of respect for Hawkeye, BJ, and Trapper. Their skill, that, that was part of her being an excellent nurse. She could admire and respect their skill, even if they teased her or picked on her or they fought or whatever. Here we had her lover being uh, a joke in the operating room. He was just inefficient, inept. That's number one. Number two, he's a married man. Right. Yeah. That's where I was going. Yeah. Let's say she was head over heels in love, which I never saw, but uh, uh, it was going nowhere. It was, it was demeaning for her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, but um, uh, again, Alan and I were talking about that. He said, it's a rough hole because the writers love the two of you and you're so funny together and so forth. We, it's going to be hard for them to let go. Funny. <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah. Uh, and so it was up to me and Larry to convince them that it could be just as funny without being demeaning, you know? And so uh, uh, I remember the wonderful time we had on the phone the writers and, and Jean and Larry and I had a conference call. I was in New York doing a play. And they said, okay, I was on hiatus, obviously. This is when you prepare for the next season. All right, uh, Lorette, how do you see her? What's coming up for her in your mind's eye? What do you, what do you want us to start thinking about? I want her to break off with Frank. <laughs> I want her to go to Tokyo. I want her to go 
on R&R and meet someone who outranks Frank, who's not a doctor. <laughs> That's great. And let her fall in love. Let her get engaged. She brings him back to the 4077 with this wonderful announcement. And this time she is head over heels in love. He's single. They're going to get married. Right. You know. So uh, I said, I can just see Linville and what he's going to do with that. Is that material? He's going to tear off the doors to the mess tent. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah, yeah right, right. So, um, yeah. so again, there was this wonderful uh, camaraderie and sharing and growing together. And uh, to, they loved those ideas. And I remember Gene said, "What? so what comes up next? I said, we get married. Harry gives me away. I've got this wonderful bridal uh, uh, the ensemble. And so um, uh, I said, so she'll get married. And Gene Reynolds said, oh, gee, I don't know. He said, sweetheart, that's a little uh, uh, permanent. And I said, Gene, you're divorced. What are you talking about? <laughs> Where do you see the permanence in marriage? Unless my, uh, I look at the ratings here. So, right, so that's right. what we did. I said, she finds that he's been disloyal. Right. And, uh, boom, you know, that's it. But again, there's a growing experience and, uh, she won't stand for that. So we see her growth. Uh, no matter what, she's going to face Donald Penobscot and say, I don't I do not do this. You have been unfaithful, and uh, I, don't, I don't forget or forgive. I, I'm out of this, this marriage. And we also wrote about how difficult that is, you know, where you, when you care about somebody and you've been so hurt, but you, have, you only have one exit to take if you're going to keep on growing. So anyway, it, everything had a kind of um, pattern of growth. Yeah, no and, question. Even uh, even through the finale, I mean, you know, the character, Harry Morgan's oh, character yeah. said to to Margaret, you know, you know, I know you've got your plan. I know you got your plan to do something, but, you yeah. know, don't forget to enjoy yourself. To have, have a, a good have, have a, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, to this day, cannot get through what I say to Harry Morgan, because we were very, very close. He was everything to me. He was my father, my confessor, my colleague, my buddy, my best friend. He was, he he wore all those hats for me. He was even eventually my neighbor. I moved closer to him by accident. So anyway, um, he and his first wife were very close. We were would go out for lunch every weekend, or that come to my house and not cook. Or so I had to look into those blue eyes, yeah, and say to him, "You dear sweet man, yeah, I'll never forget you." Well, that just it was real. It took a lot of rehearsing to get through it without sobbing, but it was real personally too. Oh. oh all of all of it was real, you know. Yeah. Let me just make that distinction. Uh, it's, that was pretty much all of us. That was our kind of acting. It was not um, an overcoat that we slipped into. Uh, it came from the heart and soul. We were we occupied those characters and behaved. Uh, innately like those characters. We knew how they would feel. Yeah. 
Yeah. And was it was it easier that you knew that even though it was the two and a half hour movie, the finale, that that wasn't actually the last episode shot? Um, it was about That's the time correct. capsule. It was bittersweet. There's no you don't spend 11 years with people yeah. you love. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, it was uh, it was bittersweet. I uh, was sobbing and sniffling through that uh, big when when they said rap, they put us in a bus and took us a few yards down to the commissary where there were hundreds of press people waiting and we were on a dais and they were asking us, you know, right this moment, how do you feel and so forth. But um, it was um, overwhelming. It was just simply overwhelming, really. And what was extraordinary when people left as they are wont to do in the army or in Henry Blake's case, he was killed or and people new people would come in and we got better because of it. Yeah. Interesting. You know, we all, yeah. we all had to relate to the new experience. Certainly Harry Morgan brought a different commanding officer than Henry Blake. And I adored McLean, but it was a whole different experience. And, um, uh, David Ogden Stiers, what a shot in the arm! What a what a new note to bring in to a uh, a Philharmonic Orchestra. You know, it was just it was each time it was it was a shot in the arm. It was adrenaline, and the show just kept growing because of it. I think because of our our new people and uh, the notes, the tones the colors that they brought us. Well, we're talking to Loretta Switz, celebrating the 50th anniversary of MASH. Such great insight. And there's more after this on 720 WGN. Goodbye, Margaret. I know you've got your career in order, but don't forget to have a happy life, too. Oh, dear, sweet man. Dave Plyer, 720 WGN. We're talking to TV legend Loretta Swit as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of MASH. You know, animal activism has been such a big part of your life for so long. How did that passion start for you? Oh, gee, I don't know. My mom and dad used to tell me they'd laugh at me when it's in the stroller. Uh, gee, uh, okay, okay, girls, you just heard from my two Yorkies. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 they said uh, I'd be in the stroller if I saw a puppy. Uh, I would just, my face would blow up like a little balloon. I'd get all red and I'd go, doggy, 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 doggy. They thought I was going to pop. And so I've always, I've always um, had that. And, uh, and then as I got older, could do something about their plight, you know. You won the Betty White Award for your activism, which must have meant a lot. She was a friend and a champion of animals yes. all her life. But you, oh boy, we Betty and I did so many campaigns together. I couldn't even name them. <laughs> That's I mean, great. She, she, yeah, she was. She was great. I remember she was at a um, microphone once about to uh, introduce me, and she said. Uh, the thing I love most about her is when you call her up and say it's about animals, she drops everything and she's there. <laughs> and so, but but you could say the same thing about Betty. I mean, we were uh, 
we were joined at the hip about that. And uh, she was actors and others for animals uh, where I am uh, the first vice president. Betty was our uh, our member forever and our our uh, I don't know I guess our our great member emeritus. You know she was always our great uh, name to help us. But she um, she was quite quite something. Well, and you re-released your book, and you have a perfume out to raise money for your foundation. Yeah, yeah talk to us yeah. about that. Yeah, so, you know the perfume is Twitheart, and the book is Twitheart Art. <laughs> nice, nice. I I owe that wonderful wonderful name. I think I just I think brilliant. Um, in uh, California, maybe you heard of it because it was uh, world famous. Giorgio, mm-hmm. they had a perfume and a boutique that was very, very famous. Um, uh, Fred Heyman uh, was the entrepreneur, and he had this beautiful boutique store in Beverly Hills. It had, for example, a long bar where the gentlemen shopping with their wives could sit and have a drink and talk and a pool table. So the wives, the girlfriends, whatever are shopping and having a wonderful time. And the guys are just playing pool and having a drink. And so this was Fred Haven's idea and it was beautiful. And so one day, um, well, always when I walked in, but he saw me and he said, there's my sweet heart. And he'd give me a big hug. And I oh. thought, what a lovely thing to do with my name. I yeah. must remember that when I, when, no, and I, this might have even been before MASH, but there's my sweet heart. And he'd give me a big <laughs> hug. And I thought, I must remember to use that. It's a great, great play on my name, you know. And so, uh, of course, I have you can shop and see all the stuff that's available. I've um, designed a sweet little heart necklace that I'm going to uh, bring out in Florida in October. And uh, it's going to be available. It, it's, it's my birthstone, Topaz. Oh, nice. Okay. So I'm always, so I'm, I make sure I'm linked into whatever it is. But it's a Topaz. But they come they can come in colors the way diamonds can. You can have a yellow diamond or a green diamond. So I've done four different colors of this little heart. I've done an amethyst and a ruby and an emerald and a diamond. And it's quite charming. I wear mine and everyone um, loved it. So I'm going to bring it out to see if if everyone uh, would like to have one, you know. Very cool, very cool. And folks can find that at sweetheart.org. Loretta, I have to tell you, what a great uh, time talking to you. Well, bless you. Thank you. Thank you for your time as well. And I love that you loved us. Just a wonderful feeling that everyone had with the laughter, the tears, and all of it, you know. Very uh, cool. it, it was uh, a blessing, a Very real cool. blessing. Very cool. Thank you so much, Loretta. Okay, God bless. Have a great day, huh? You too. Thanks again. All right, we'll continue our celebration of TV Classic MASH with Alan Alda coming up next here on 720 WGN. Second taste, Doc? Yes, please. Potatoes? 
fine. Green corn? Thank you. And for the entree today? Here it comes. Steady. We have liver or fish? I didn't hear you say that. Because it isn't possible. It's inhuman to serve the same food day after day. The Geneva Convention prohibits the killing of our taste buds. Easy. I simply cannot eat the same food every day. Fish, liver, day after day. I've eaten a river of liver and an ocean of fish. I've eaten so much fish, I'm ready to grow gills. I've eaten so much liver, I can only make love if I'm smothered in bacon and onions. Are we going to stand for this? We're going to let them do this to us? No, I say, no! We're not going to eat this drink anymore! We want something else! We want something else! Well, we continue our celebration of TV classic MASH and its 50th anniversary with television legend Alan Alda. Alan has earned international recognition as an actor, writer, and director. In addition to The Aviator, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, Alan's films include Crimes and Misdemeanors, Flirting with Disaster, Same Time Next Year, and The Seduction of Joe Tynan, which he wrote, and The Four Seasons, Sweet Liberty, and New Life, and Betsy's Wedding, all of which he wrote and directed. In all, he has received six Emmys and has been nominated for an Emmy 34 times, along with winning countless Golden Globes, Screen Actors Guild, Directors Guild, and Writer Guild Awards. In 1994, he was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame. He hosted the award-winning series Scientific American Frontiers on PBS for 11 years, and for over 20 years, he has worked to help broaden the public's understanding of science. He's a TV legend, and we welcome Alan Alda back to the program. Hi, Alan. Thank you for that sterling introduction. It's very kind. <laughs> You're welcome. Absolutely. You know, you were about 11 when you first appeared on television in a local amateur hour doing magic. You studied English at Fordham University. You were a student staff member at the FM radio station there. You acted with your father on television, joined the ROTC, and you did a lot of stage work, nominated for a Tony. You also did quite a bit of both film and television, Sergeant Bilko, The Twilight Zone, on the big screen in Paper Lion. You really did more drama than comedy, and then you got the role of Hawkeye on MASH. How did that all come about? Well, it's funny you say that, because if, if they saw me, uh, they, I, would, I, I never auditioned for MASH. I, I was, my work was sort of known from stage and movies, and they just asked me to do it. But it's interesting you say mostly I had done serious parts, so if they, if they got the idea from seeing that, that I could do MASH, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. I, I, I had done comedies on Broadway, so I think they knew me from that. I did the, the album, The Pussycat, Diana, sure. the stage version of it before the movie came out. Um, but what, what, what intrigued me about it was that it was written so well. The pilot was written by Larry Gelbart, who was a comedy genius. And uh, it was the, some of the best writing for television I had ever seen. I was a little worried that it might become a, a trivial that it might present war in a trivial way. And I, I waited until the last minute. I was making a movie in a prison in Utah right. when I got the script. So I, I had to wait till I got out of prison to agree <laughs> to do the, the show MASH and to have a conversation with them where we decided that we all agreed that we were going to take the war seriously, that we would 
It wouldn't just be off stage. We'd see the results of it. Which which would be, of course. It didn't bother, it didn't bother the audience at all. I mean, no. They, that became the hallmarks of the show. Yeah, you and I and I love that you want to do that. I mean, you you didn't want it to be all laughs. It could be some jokes, it could be some laughs, but you really wanted that reality. And and that probably best sets it up for what war was all about. I mean, there was moments that I would laugh out loud and then there was moments that I would really take pause to listen to what you were saying and put myself where you were. Yeah, thank you. I think that's one of the uh, benefits of watching good drama and and I, I really, I, my own personal taste is that I'd like to see a, a play that shows me the, the laughter in life and also acknowledges that eventually we're all going to die. So, yeah, so yeah. Not literally, but that life isn't all laughing and you laugh anyway. Sure. Isn't, it, isn't the laugh sweeter if you laugh anyway than if you just laugh and and ignore the fact that there are things not to laugh at. Well, you bring up a play. I always felt that um, MASH was a 22-minute play that aired every week. And even though maybe the earlier seasons were a little more comedy than drama, and then maybe the later seasons were a little more drama than comedy, I always felt like I was was watching kind of a self-contained play every week. It just seemed like what you were doing on, on stage. I don't know why some people have made that distinction, because... Some uh, some of the most serious stuff occurred early in the show's run. Yeah. I remember in the first or second year, a patient died on the operating table uh, in a play in a, a show written by Larry Gelbart, uh, who was a comic genius. And I thought, but he had this patient die on the table, and it was a patient, clo- uh, you know, a close friend of Hawkeye's. So there was, there was a big emotional uh, response to it. And that was part of the, the beginnings of, of MASH. The, the network was really worried about getting so, so deep into the, into the, the, the parts of war that, that really hurt, like death and, and, and dismemberment and that kind of thing, which is hard to take. But the, the head of the network said, uh, "What what is this? A situation tragedy?" Is that right? But it didn't the audience, the audience didn't mind. They, I mean, they, I think they took it all in all as uh, you know for how we meant it, which was to try to reflect the lives of the people who really lived through that experience. Well, that yeah, that's what put that human the, connection in there. Is you know when Henry yeah, Blake, when, when Henry. Yeah, what you described before of watching a human experience. I mean, when when Henry Blake, you know, died, and I know that was a script that was, you know, you knew about it, but it was a script that was kind of handed to everyone at the last minute, and it was a real reaction, not only from the people on stage, but, you know, I remember it still as that being one of the most poignant moments on television that really set the tone where here's this really funny guy. We've been laughing at the show for the first three years here. It's fabulous, but this is the reality of war. Yeah, and I think Larry Gilbert, who wrote that scene, uh, felt that it it could help you understand what it's like when you're talking to your buddy one minute and a minute later the buddy is gone. Right. And it, the shock of that, the surprise, I think the the whole the whole audience felt who had come to know the characters. 
The other element in it was a little more human. Larry Gelbart, who wrote the scene, was upset with McLean Stevenson, who played the character who died, and he was upset with him for leaving the show. So he wrote a scene that made it so he could never come back. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it wasn't all all art. No, not at all. Not at all. And I think what brought that cast together so well in tying that time of your life back to the book, you would sit around and do table reads, but there was a bonding. You told stories about each other's lives before you even started reading the scripts. You had deep relationships with these people that ultimately helped you communicate better when, when the camera was on. Yeah. And we did that all through the run of the series. We sat in chairs between shots instead of uh, retreating to our dressing rooms. Most of the time we sat together and just left. Yeah. And that really, that, that a lot of people talked about the rapport the, ca- the cast had. That oh, yeah. They seemed like they had been living together for those months. And I think that's what did it, is that we really did have a connection that we kept going. We, we, in some ways, we deliberately knew that we were helping the show by by that connection we were maintaining. And, you know, I know it's not easy for you, and you've mentioned this before, to act with someone you really don't know. You like to build up, you talk about trust again and communication. You like to build up some trust and get to know who you're working with before you before the lights go on. It's very hard to act with somebody you don't know. I, you, you have to pretend to know them. And sometimes you can get away with pretending, but... Pretending pretty much is pretending, and at some level, conscious or unconscious, I think the audience is liable to figure out that you're pretending. If you, if the more you can have that genuine to work from, authentic, the the more uh, the more you you'll behave in a way that's authentic without making yourself do it, without sure. putting your face in a position that looks like you're authentic, but you actually are authentic because there are involuntary muscles that go into play when you have some real relationship with somebody. Well, you can tell on the set how invested everybody was, and there were moments of MASH that seemed improvised, but there was little of that. It was really just well rehearsed with the trust that was built amongst the cast. That's true. We were, we were most of us were from the theater, and we were very concerned about respecting the written word and every everything that was written. We said we would sometimes uh, ask questions about it or ask the changes at the table read. But once the script was set, that was it. And uh, there was there we were. The funny thing was. People did think some scenes were yeah. improvised and yeah. just happened. The mm-hmm. timing would just happen, luckily. In fact, those scenes that looked the most improvised, we sometimes would do 20 takes to get that down so that it was so smooth that it looked, it looked like it was just happening. Here's what I noticed when I've seen some MASH bloopers on the air. A lot of television shows, you know, you can get them on the DVDs and so forth, or they're on YouTube or wherever. And it was always fun and games. Someone messed up. They'd go back, whatever. You're, you and the cast seemed f- really frustrated when you would flub because it kind of broke that continuity of what you were trying to communicate. Like it wasn't as other comedies that would just be laughing off and it would be 10, five, 10, 15 minutes before they get started again. You guys got right back into it. 
Well, there, yes, except for those times when we, we get into a laughing jag because <laughs> it's late in the afternoon and the lights have sucked all the oxygen out of the air <laughs> and you're, you're just helpless. Somebody makes some stupid mistake and then you, you try to go on and you can't. That would, they could last 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. And very often a fellow actor would be directing the show the day before, when he wasn't directing, he'd be helpless with laughter during the laughing jag period. <laughs> now that he's director, he's not laughing. He's saying, come on, people. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was you, too. was charge really suffered. Yeah, yeah. We found a commercial with you. I think you used to do a lot of uh, Roy Leonard shows back in the 80s, and you had done a commercial, a TV commercial for us, advertising WGN Radio years ago. When I'm in Chicago, I always listen to WGN. When I'm in Chicago, I'm always on WGN. Even in the morning, it's always WGN. When I'm always in Chicago, I, I listen to WGN. And when I'm in Chicago, I'm on WGN. It was very cool. <laughs> it was very cool. It was great. Yeah. Alan, uh, such a pleasure. Uh, and thank you for taking the time tonight. Thank you. That's very nice, David. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. All right. We'll be right back. 